Welcome to Foolish Voices, a Company of Fools podcast. Company of Fools is a professional theater based in Sun Valley, Idaho, and is a proud part of the Sun Valley Museum of Art. More information on Company of Fools and the museum can be found online at svmoa.org. Welcome to Foolish Voices. I'm Scott Palmer, Producing Artistic Director of Company of Fools. And on this show, we talk to a wide range of theater artists, both here in Sun Valley and all across the world, about how the current global health crisis is impacting their work, about their creative lives, and about their hopes for the future of our art form. Please consider supporting Company of Fools by making a donation in any amount via our podcast platform or online at svmoa.org. In this episode, I have the great pleasure of talking with internationally acclaimed actor and director Molly Lyons. Molly is a recent transplant to Tucson from Chicago, and Molly has directed such shows as On the Verge, Twelfth Night, Julius Caesar, Barbara Obsville, Carmen, The Foreigner, Diary of Anne Frank, and uh, an award-winning production of Glass Menagerie, among many, many more. As an actor, some of her favorite roles include Ellie in Sweet Texas Reckoning, The Nurse in Romeo and Juliet, Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing, Titania in A Midsummer Night's Dream, and Cecilia at Water's Edge, and as the last queen of Ireland in her solo show, A Most Notorious Woman. Molly has worked across the U.S. and internationally in Canada and Europe, and she had her studies at Santa Clara University and the California Institute of Arts and the Royal Shakespeare Company. Molly has been artistic director of Greenwood Studios, actor training, and actors international retreat experience since 1994. Molly, welcome to Foolish Voices. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. How is Tucson? Well, this week it happens to be hot. We're having a little bit of a heat wave early, but uh, the nights are cool, so that's good. Is is Tucson? It's funny because that's it's not. No one on the on the nightly national news ever talks about how the pandemic is impacting Tucson, Arizona. Uh, how how's it going there? Well, uh, let's put it this way: um, we're ranked fiftieth in testing. So it's hard to say how we're really doing because we don't really know how many cases there are. Uh, we are a state uh, that is largely an, a mature population. There's a lot of snowbirds who come here from the north who are retired. And um, a lot of people who come here for respiratory reasons um, because of the you know, nice, clean, dry air. So I am concerned about those people being vulnerable and at risk. And... Um, Concerned that I think we're going to reopen too soon. To that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, no. Look, you. We can get political on this podcast. It's all good. <laughs> I mean, okay. The, the things I've said. Well, let's put it this way: time. we have a governor who's a former ice cream salesman who adores a former reality show host as president. Got let's it. Just, let's just put it that way. I think I think I understand exactly what you mean. That was mm-hmm. a that was a beautifully framed. <laughs> about the about the politics of Arizona. Well, well done you. Um, have Tucson you, is very artistic and blue and wonderful. It's a gorgeous city. It's, it it's surrounded by mountains. Um, there's a lot of artists here, and I love our new mayor. Um, she's wonderful. She's the first Latinx uh, um, woman mayor of Tucson, which I find hard to believe. But there you have it. Um, wow, that, that that is a little surprising. I know. 
She's amazing, though. I love her. That's great. Well, and she we'll, loves the arts. So we yay. will share. We will share this podcast on her website <laughs> so she can know how much you love and admire her. Um, how about you? As I mean, I know you were a recent transplant to Tucson from Chicago, right? Yes. So and has I, this has this impacted your artistic work? Well, yes. Uh, I was in the process of um, opening my acting studio here, uh, finding a home for it, and. Um, and also working on some projects. I was able to direct a couple of shows before the pandemic hit, but then other things I had slated to happen, of course, were canceled. And also, although uh, I have done private audition coaching virtually, I am trying to adjust to be able to teach actors more than just one-on-one -on -one coaching for auditions uh, virtually, because that's all we can do right now. Yeah, that must be, I mean, I know in addition to your work as an, an actor and a director, that you also have this, this very long and sort of storied history of being an acting coach and actor training. Um, how, how, is, how do you think that's going to work in the coming months? I mean, is it right. all going to just be online? I, well, I think it will be unless um, we can reach a point where it's truly safe to gather in small groups. And at that, for me personally, I would have to keep people safe. My whole goal as a teacher and a director is to keep actors safe, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, so they can do the great, take the great risks that our playwrights write for them. And to me, to put people in a room, if we're not 100% certain that everyone's going to be okay, would be a violation of all of that. So I, I do need to rethink it. I have some good friends uh, I went to graduate school with, KO, know some of them who are professors at universities in the Los Angeles area. And I actually was talking to one and said, I'm going to need coaching on how you do scene study. How do you do scene study with people? How can you tell if they're connecting, if everyone's virtual? So we are going to talk more about that. Um, and that's one wonderful thing that the pandemic has brought about is that we're all reaching out to each other and figuring out, you know, how do you make this technology work? How do you keep artists connected in a business that demands it? And, and coach me on <laughs> How to do it if you know how and everyone is cooperating and collaborating on that front yeah i mean it is it is one of the things that as a as a director uh, i would not describe myself as an actor by any stretch of the imagination but one of the things that i'm hearing from my actor colleagues and other and other artistic director colleagues is they, they sort of throw the hands up in the air and say look everybody wants us to go online right everybody wants us to push material out on the internet but but how do we do that when mm -hmm. so much of our work as directors in collaboration with actors and even designers is about being co-present, right? It's like yes. being in the room with each other. It's such an essential part of what it is we do. Um, are, are, do are, you, are we gonna figure it out or is it just gonna, do we just have to wait? <laughs> well, I was gonna be directing um, in a new play festival here in town at Winding Road Theater and the festival was canceled uh, because of, well, I should say it's postponed, but they're actually going to try it virtually. Uh, the show I was slated to direct was a large cast, the largest in the, in the festival. And, and instead they, they picked one of the smaller plays that was kind of a runner up 
But lucky me, uh, they also gave me three of the best actresses in town to work with <laughs> on the project. So we're going to have to figure it out. I don't know, directing three people, how, how we stay connected. I think it's going to boil down to what uh, a dear friend of mine who a colleague and, um, and teacher and, and mentor from Second City used to say, um, can I say blue words? You can. Okay. He used to just say, you know, number one job in improvisation is listen like a motherfucker. <laughs> so <laughs> we're, we're all just going to have to listen like motherfuckers. <laughs> yes, uh, I think that's true. I mean, I, will you, once you figure it out and once you have mastered it, will you just call me and let me know how to do it? Of course. I don't want to have to go through the trouble. And there's other projects that, you know, I think I can, I have been asked by several playwrights to, who usually ask me to read their plays for them when they're still developing them because uh, they trust me as an actor and a, uh, and a lover of, of plays and, and text to, they know that they know I'm there to serve the vision of their play. So they often ask me to read their plays, but it's usually in person. So now I'm having people set me up with virtual, you know, will you please read this play for me so I can hear it. And that's, I think that's a corner we're turning. How are people going to keep writing if they never hear what it sounds like? Yeah, I, that's fascinating, right? I mean, that's the sort of thing that, you know, before, in the before time, uh, <laughs> we would, you know, people would say, oh, I've got this play or let's sit, let's go to the bar and we'll read some stuff or let's just sit in the theater and we'll kind of go over some scripts. And, uh -huh. you know, just the idea of trying to do that process, which is so intimate and immediate and relies on so many things other than just watching or listening, right? It's body uh -huh. language, it's chemistry, it's all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I do, I worry about whether or not um, those those experiments in virtual workshopping, virtual coaching, virtual collaboration are going to be missing one of those key, you know, alchemical ingredients that sort of makes it all work. Um, but you don't sound that worried. I won't say I'm not worried, and I won't say that I, I want theater to go that way. I just think that if we're all going to keep going in this interim it seems like the only what choice we have. Um, and just like now, you know, I feel like you're, you're paying attention to my tone of voice and, and, and what I'm saying carefully and picking up on those cues and taking the conversation to the next level. We're just, that's, that's what we have for now. Um, do, I'm not, I will definitely not say that I'm not worried because, because I am. <laughs> yeah. You know, but what, you know, one of my most, I always tell my acting students that one of the most successful people I know in the theater is a, a friend of one of my, or uh, the husband of one of my best friends. And he's a dresser on Broadway and huge, huge stars fight over booking him to be their dresser. And he wonders if, you know, the days of nothing against any of these particular shows, but Lion King and Les Mis and all the giant, giant, big shows that become touring shows, if that's going to fade away at least for a time until we have a proven vaccine. And that we might, you know, as um, Uta Hagen always said, you know, once upon a time, the theater was run by playwrights and then the theater was run by producers. And that's when it took a corner of what, and success was redefined. Right. And that, 
you know, Tennessee Williams never would have had a chance to do five endings for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof because (laughs) the producers would have said, it didn't sell out the first two weeks. Forget it. Right, right. Screw it. We're not, you know, we're so not going to take a risk on a different ending. Right. We, yeah, we may go back to a, a more artistic run style of theater, which would be a delight. Um, <laughs> and the smaller house will be popular. You know, coming from Chicago, I think of all the storefront theaters and, and how popular those are. And when the pandemic first started, we were limited to crowds of 50. And a lot of those theaters in Chicago are definitely, you know, less than 50. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Or fewer even. Exactly. So it may take us to a return to real intimacy once, once we do, but once it's safe for us to go back in public with one another, yeah, we can hope. Anyway. Yeah, we can hope. I think. I mean, I absolutely. Yeah, in my in in the dark nights of my soul, when I am sitting here as a producing artistic director of a <sighs> of a theater company, I I sit here and I stare almost exclusively at financial projections. Uh, yes. And as a result of that, I am experiencing this crisis and all of the planning through mm-hmm. the lens of the financial statements. Of course. And, and that yeah. that is very challenging. I mean, you know, I, like you, right? Like I kind of grew up as a, as a director, you know, let's put on a show in the old bar and let's see if people will come. And, you know, we, we sort of had a, 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 a much more open heart to risk and to, it was less about the money and more about the art form. Um, I am blessed, and I think those of us who make our careers in the theater, you know, we need to ensure that people are continually paid a living wage for their work, Um, and that should be a focus as we move forward. Um, But I am hopeful that we stop sort of seeing everything through the lens of the financial statement and much more through, as Uta Hagen would say, back to that period of time when when the world of theater was was being run by artists and not necessarily by managers. Does yes. that make sense? Totally. Absolutely. I don't know. I still have to, I still, I gotta, I gotta keep, I gotta balance this budget, Molly. Yep. <laughs> the rent still has to be paid. Yeah, exactly. There are a lot of companies in some communities that don't have permanent homes and they, in Chicago, for instance, there's a bunch of big theater houses that have, five to seven stages in them. And they are the home to companies that have, don't have their own bricks and mortar. And I love those buildings and I worry about them because they've, you know, there's one in particular where I've done a bunch of shows and it went from having three stages to, I think I was starring in a show there last summer and there were, I want to say nine performance stages in the building because they have poured everything into renovating this building. And while there are a lot of companies who are like, well, if we don't mount a show, at least we don't have to pay rent. But then there are these wonderful spaces that are the home to, to many companies who, <laughs> you know, what are they, what, how are they going to keep their doors open for, for when we, we do go back into gatherings? Yeah, that, that sort of Arts Hub collaborative model is one that I am finding myself drawn to pretty pretty consistently over the last you know eight weeks 
the idea that, you know, there, because in Sun Valley, even though it's this teeny tiny little town in the, you know, Idaho, Idaho mountains, there are actually a number of theaters here that are providing service to not only the folks who live here year round, but also the folks who have second and third homes and they fly in during okay. the summer and the winter. And I, I just think, oh my God, we all, we all got to get in the same boat together somehow, yes. right? Like shared risk, shared resources, all of those kinds of things feel like a much more sustainable model than the kind of independent competitive 400 500 600 seat auditorium which i mean good lord when when is the next time we're going to get to be in a building like that right i don't know yeah it's nuts so so in terms of your work as an artist i mean i mm. i'm noting that you have uh, a, a a slight uh, preference for the classical um, is is that true? I mean, I'm seeing here that you are directing Twelfth Night and Caesar and the Barber of Seville and Magic Flute and Carmen and I mean those, those are of a kind, my friend. Yes. Uh, and also a number of your favorite roles are some of my favorite roles, like you know, Romeo and Juliet, Beatrice, yes. and Much Ado. Um, is that your jam? Is the sort of classical work your jam? That's that's my training, and then the other half of my career is brand new plays. And my acting studio in Seattle, when I had my own space, we uh, I always offered space for free to playwrights who needed to get their plays heard on the condition I could cast my students, but I'm a really good casting director, so they were never unhappy with me. Um, and and our, our new play series used to sell out and literally pack people in. There was a guy who lived down the street from the acting studio who said, this is some of the best theater work I've seen in Seattle because they were seeing plays being born, taking in their first steps, walking a little bit, running, and then all the way as far as we could go in our space to getting them fully mounted. Um, and then, you know, last summer I went back to Chicago to star in a brand new play um, with Artemisia Theater, and which was Sweet Texas Reckoning. So I'm kind of, I have one foot in both worlds. And I'm sure our, our dearly beloved uh, K.O. would vouch for me that when we were at CalArts together, you know, Libby Apple was always the classically trained actor is the best actor for new plays because you understand text, you understand the structure of um, the crisis of the play and, and all of that. So um, that's been, I've been kind of one foot in each in each world and I do love especially developing new plays and helping playwrights um, make those happen however I can, whether it's providing my voice or a table or um, a bunch of actors who need to learn or, um, or, or the, the literal space for them to do it without cost. Have you, have you been sort of hearing or seeing these conversations happening online about a concern on the part of the American theater, and I am doing giant air quotes when I say the American theater, because it's <laughs> hilarious to call all of us in the industry sort of part of one family, right? We're yeah. so radically different. But there's a lot of conversation about people sort of saying, oh God, you know, we're, 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 gonna, we're gonna be seeing a lot of classics. Um, you know, a return to the the safe, to the well-known, to the big name, um, which in turn is going to mean, you know, a reduction in diversity of voices, a reduction in diversity of actors, uh -huh. um, less new work being produced because of the just sort of abject fear 
that theater companies are going to have around finances once theater reopens. Yes. Um, when if they don't have to, if it's a dead playwright whose estate isn't gobbling up their royalties still, uh, then yes, people people may for as you were saying, you know, for the budget, um, try to keep those costs down. Um, I have found that that's always been a bit of a disease, though. I I I was here in Tucson and um, talking to a theater company that as soon as I arrived, it also shut its doors um, because the artistic director said to me, you know, do you have any plays you really want to direct? And I said, yes, I just worked at Chicago Dramatists on this new play. I think it would be great for the demographic here. It's very funny. It's very touching. It's all women and it's all mature women. And he went, great. Oh, since you know the playwright, do you think that he would, you know, give us a pass on the royalties? And I went, I'm not, I'm take, I take it back. Yeah, right. Nope. Nope. <laughs> no. What did you just say to my yeah, face? Really? Right, exactly. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> because I know the playwright, I'm right. supposed to say don't get paid. Any what? chance, any chance you could get me this great new play for free. Any chance. <laughs> so I think that's always been a thing. Um and you know, I, I know some playwrights who hate the dead white play, male playwrights like Shakespeare because everybody does them, they don't have to pay anything. And, and so, you know, what about these new plays? Um, I think that, I think there's value in both. And I certainly think there's value for actors in both, but I also think, you know, there's value in the audience for both. I think it would be tragic if for fear, we stopped doing new plays. That would be horrible and, and break my heart, but. Um, yeah, absolutely. What, what would you say, I mean, what would you say to uh, artistic directors who are in, who are also up to their eyeballs in these financial documents going, oh God, we got to do Neil Simon, right? Like, oh God, let's, let's pull out a Romeo and Juliet and a Much Ado About Nothing and just do those for the next three years. What would you say to them about the, about, about embracing the, the new? I would say it's a perfect opportunity to give birth to a new play. We have the room for it. We need the stories. Um, I'm, I'm finding it's actually a positive thing. You know, our, our mutual friend K.O. called me one day out of the blue and just said, I need to know that someone's checking up on you. Are, how are you doing? And we're, we're wanting connection. And I do think it's a wonderful opportunity for us to connect with new stories because new stories are going to be born out of this. Um, I was talking to an actor friend in Chicago who told me that this, this 80 something year old neighbor of his said, do you think that once a week we could just pull our chairs into the hallway and sit 10 feet apart and just talk? And it reminded me of that John Prine song, Hello in There. Mm -hmm. And I, and John Prine had just passed away and I burst into tears and said, imagine the songs that he could have written right. if, if this pandemic hadn't robbed us of him and his creativity. Imagine the stories that are going to come out of the desperate need for people to connect on a deeper level. 
And I do think I would say and have said to art, the artistic directors that I know, this is a great opportunity to do new plays. Maybe we need to do small new plays. I've personally suggested a couple of two-handers that I would be fabulous in if anyone wants to cast me. <laughs> Not only for the work, but also because they're brand new stories and they need to be told and they are about an intimate connection. And I think we're all longing for that. And it's a wonderful opportunity to seek it. And sure, and then, you know, open the season with, with a cash cow and then, <laughs> and then follow it up with a brand new story. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think, you know, this is, the, this is the great sort of crisis of confidence that many of us are facing in terms of programming seasons. I mean, we, a company of fools, we had a you know a season of almost all new work uh, in rotating rep, three shows during the summer. Uh, you know, partnership with the National New Play Network, and then the pandemic hit, and we Ugh. we pulled it all, right? We just didn't. They were larger casts. Um, we couldn't we couldn't be assured that we could fly the actors into the valley from outside of the valley, right? Not a lot of equity actors here in town. Uh, weren't sure that we were going to be able to house them, kind of stack them like cordwood in various houses, right? Like, <laughs> like you do when you're doing summer rep, right? Um, I have done this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's you know, there's a reason they call it summer stock, right? Yeah. Um, and and so we decided instead that we were going to go to. Uh, smaller, you know, one and two handers, solo pieces and, and two handers, um, still trying to do fairly relevant social justice focused kind of work. But, um, but yeah, I mean, these are the things, you know, a, a playwright, dear playwright from a friend of mine said to me recently, I got to stop, I got to stop thinking about small plays as being three actors. I got to start thinking about them as being one. Right. Yeah. Like that, because, the you know, somebody said to me the other day, well, if you do this and we still have social distancing restrictions in place, how are you going to block a, a play with two, even two actors if they literally can't get more than six, you know, closer than six feet? Um, mm -hmm. I didn't even think of that. You know, I was like, oh, right. God. yeah, these are these are crazy times. There's only so much Beckett we can do. I know. You are, the fifth, you are the fifth person to mention Beckett to me in the last three days. Well, because of that stupid mound of dirt. I know. <laughs> Look, I mean, we all went there in grad school, right? Like that was, yeah. I had my Beckett moment when I was in grad school. I was like, this is the future of theater. Uh, yeah, I know. I don't know if I'm ready to go back. Speaking of estates who still gobble up. Okay, anyway. Right, yes, <laughs> yes. So, no, you'll see on my resume, chewing on Beckett, it's actually, it actually flips the, the Beckett estate on its ear and the, the Godot, no women can ever be cast in this play thing. So it was a brand new play I was in a couple of years ago in Chicago that was, that was uh, attacking all of that. Right. And rightly Somebody so. has to. Yeah, somebody somebody has to. to. So tell anyway. me about, tell me about your one woman show. So I... I, I spent a, a, a long time, about six, seven years in the UK. I was uh, I was the uh, founding artistic director of Glasgow Repertory Company, an outdoor Shakespeare festival wow. there. Yeah, so you, so when I saw your resume, I was like, we're gonna get along just fine. Yes, we um, are. <clears throat> worked with a lot of Irish actors in the in the festival. And you have this, um, you have this solo show called I A do. Most Notorious Woman about the last queen of Ireland. Will you? Tell us about that. Yes. I was, um, I took a break from theater for a while. I was um, taking care of uh, 
a sick ex. And, and I was teaching and I went to a, a retreat in the Catskills and um, someone's, now I am dual citizen Irish, by the way. Okay. And, um, and someone right before I left, one of my aunties, my, my mom and her two sisters went to Ireland together and they brought back this book and my auntie handed me this book and she said, this would make a great play. And I had it on the plane with me as I was on my way to the retreat. And while I was there, my friend Michael, who used to say, listen, like a motherfucker, um, said, does anyone have a character they want to work on? And I said, sure, I'll try this character <laughs> out. And then, it, and then it became a one-woman show. And I've toured um, across Canada. And, and I did two tours in Ireland, uh, one command performance for the actual clan of her descendants which was terrifying i bet it was terrifying talk about was, a rough house <laughs> it was one of the best but i you know i i was escorted in by the the clan pipers you know but i also thought they could hate me these people could hate me fortunately they did not hate me they loved me and it was also one of the most magical performances i've ever experienced in my career but um yeah, it was, I, I started to develop and I had no idea which way it was going to go. And then everyone who helped in the development of it and who, who stepped in to work with me on it said, this is a one-woman show. Just let it be that. And I do work with a musician, um, a good friend from Seattle who has met me all over the world as far as Tbilisi, Georgia, uh, and Ireland and Canada and New Mexico and Colorado and wherever I forget where all else we've gone but um and he brings some original pieces into it as well as some traditional Irish music and songs about Grania and it's just one of those wonderful experiences that I never thought would happen and happened in a very magical kind of way I love those stories. Those are the best kind. <laughs> I know. And here's the weird thing. So I'm working on the play and certainly after I started to write it, I had a, I had a, an accident and I had to have one of my legs rebuilt. So I was stuck in a wheelchair with my legs sticking out straight in front of me, couldn't put it down or anything. And so I thought, well, I guess I better finish this play. And I was working on it and looking up something in this book that my auntie had given me. And I noticed that the writer of the book dedicated the book to her, she said, to my grandfather, uh, Cruz, and his last name was Cruz, uh, C-R-U-I-S-E, which in my part of Ireland, they say Cruz. And I called my mom and I said, isn't this weird that this woman dedicated, you know, this book to her grandfather, Cruz, you know, wasn't that Pop, my grandfather, wasn't that Pop's best friend's name? And she goes, yeah, that's him. And I went, what? <laughs> she said, no, 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 that, that, that's the granddaughter of your grandfather's best friend. Like, well, I mean, at the end of the day, there are only 14 people in Ireland. I mean, that's what all you know, of my Irish friends say. Oh, yeah, I know him. Yeah. It's always the case. Yeah. Well, I called my cousin and I said, Pat, can you, know, can you put me in touch with this woman? And we got on the phone and I asked her because she had exclusive rights to some material um, in it. And that she, you know, some research that she did from that she got from the O'Malley clan and so on. And I said, can I use this? And she said, of course. And then I said, you know, isn't it odd, Anne, that you and I would both be drawn to this woman, you know, all these hundreds of years later, and then find this connection? And she said, is it odd, Molly? Is it? <laughs> 
Yeah, no, no, I guess it's not. It's really it's not. Witches. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I have so many stories of, of, of after having lived in Scotland for six or seven years and then <clears throat> worked with a whole bunch of incredibly talented Irish actors and directors who would yeah. come over for the summer. Um, you know, I was in I was in uh, Wellington, New Zealand, like as far away as you could possibly get on the planet from Scotland and was at a pub and somebody started chatting me. Was, they had an Irish accent. I was like, oh, where are you from? Blah, 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 chatty. And I, I said, oh, I, you know, I used to work in Scotland. Oh, blah, blah, blah. I have a friend who's an actor. And I said, oh, what's her name? Michelle Wiggins. Oh, my God. She was in three seasons with me, right? Like <laughs> halfway across the world. And, uh, and I'm like, and he, he's like, I just talked to her a couple of days ago. So we're, you know, oh, my God. Yeah. Hilarious. I love that. The That's Irish amazing. and the Scots. The Irish yeah, and the yeah, Scots yeah. are exactly the same way. And Scotland, in my opinion, is, is even has a deeper level of spooky about it than Ireland does. I would I would agree, although not having had a lot of spooky Ireland experiences, uh, I mean, I definitely, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I definitely feel like uh, the time that I spent in Scotland uh, is, it surrounds me almost all the time. Yeah. You know, it's just sort of constantly present for, for me. Um, when yeah. the ground and the air Everything. and the water yeah, has a spirit about it, about them each. Yeah, no. That I, you can feel coming up through your feet or, you know, into your throat or, yeah. Absolutely. No, I think that's absolutely true. I have since the, since the, the shelter in place, um, every Saturday at three o'clock my time, 10 p.m. Glasgow time, uh, a group of my colleagues and former staff and the actors and a whole bunch of us we get online and we we all we always say it will only be an hour but it always ends up being four hours and we always say <laughs> it's only one drink and it always ends up being 14 drinks so i um, love that yeah, so you're having virtual happy hour we are with with people in scotland and in and in ireland actually uh Beautiful. and in london uh and you know i i always just say i can't stay late and then six hours goes by <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Ooh, I miss them. Uh, yeah. it's a it is a brilliant brilliant uh, the culture there I, it is partly what i think of when i think of how much we've lost in the past eight weeks around theater yes is sense of community and connection and just open mm -hmm. sort of raw um, sharing and being and storytelling and all of that kind of stuff that is reflected so deeply in the cultures of Ireland and Scotland um, that that I think we're you know that's what people are hungry for right now and it's mm -hmm. why I feel hopeful about about the future yes because we need it if if you had to say Molly what what your great hope would be what what lessons we had learned uh, what would you hope theater as an as an art form learns from this moment and and what do you see being the best possible outcome for us a, is that a giant a, ridiculous yeah question? Know. no it's fabulous it's a fabulous question and something you know that i'll i'll answer and then hope to continue to answer as we move ahead but i think in the same vein, as I was saying earlier, I hope we learn that big is the size of the story, not necessarily the size of the set. That story is about, you know, connection and not about sales. 
and that you know character is something that we develop first as human artists and then those people that we play i find people are reaching deeper inside i am um in trying to imagine what my vision is for people and how how to connect with them and and i was remembering not long ago that a wonderful actor who i grew up watching it ACT in San Francisco and then she was in Seattle and she came to speak to my students at my acting studio and she said the first thing you need to do as an actor is develop character and I don't mean the ones you're going to play I mean who you are as a human mm. you need to be healthy mentally physically spiritually emotionally you need to be um, able to work with others in a collaborative way and that means everybody in the building and if you don't have a core character of your own, you're never going to be able to develop characters that you play. Mm. And I'm hoping that we, we find our way to that place. And that we remember that what's important about the stories that we tell is the humanity. And not... Um, rank the success of these creations on anything other than that. Yes. Please let that be true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's why we did this in the first place, right? Like it's how it's yes. why we were. Yeah. It's a, it's a nice, it, it's a nice thing to think that in yes. a moment of forced quiet, when we when we are being required to sit, and uh, and perhaps busy ourselves with with things that we no, don't no, normally get to be busy with, mm -hmm. we can remind ourselves of the of the just the baseline of why we were drawn to this in the first place, right? Yes, indeed. Well, you have actually made me feel better, which I was not <gasps> expecting. Wow, uh, it's that's it's a it's a very good thing to be reminded of, um, mm. you know. And, and like I said, I'm I'm surrounded by financial documents and and plans and you know, option one through option twenty five about what we're gonna do and all that kind of stuff. And it's just nice. It's right. a breath of fresh air to be like, oh yeah, storytelling, shared humanity. <laughs> Oh, well, yeah. and I think some of that, you know, some of the risk is going to be trusting the audience um, to also be longing for stories. Yeah, to, to remember not, that we feel, yeah, we feel not selling them short well. and saying, yeah. oh, they've, they've got to have a cash cow. They've got to have something familiar and splashy and a sure thing. Let's do Steel Magnolias again. Or whatever you know, I've, and I don't mean not. I've been in Steel Magnolias. I love that play, but you know what I'm saying. It's a it's a box office. It's a cash cow. People can count on it selling. Right. And and you know, let, I think we need to give the rest of humanity credit. I, and I find that a lot of producers, not you, but you know, because it sounds like you have a, a huge heart for the story. Um, and of course you have to worry about your budget. And there are so many producers that never trust an audience to want to come to something new or want to come to something small or want to come 
take a risk on a different vision for the familiar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we, while we are as, as part of it, of the theater industry, and I use that term in the, in almost a literal term, right? Like this, we are the industrial nature of American theater, which is churn shows out, churn them out, churn them out, churn them out. Mm. Um, you know, as tighten up those rehearsal schedules, get them down to two weeks, see how many, see how many shows you can okay. have into a season, uh, <laughs> right? Like that, the industry of it all, um, mm. that that's partly why we're in so much trouble right oh. now, right? Like the nature of what it has happened, of what, of what American theater has become over the last decade or two is partly why we are going, oh God, we have to be generating cash. We have to be generating cash. Um, and my, my hope is that we take a moment and realize that, you know, we are, we are part of a family. Our audience, it, they come to us because they want to be connected and challenged and delighted and thrilled and all of those things. And they want to do that with others in the community. Um, and we can do that. We can continue to do that uh, without maybe, you know, spending a million dollars on a set, right? Right. Right. Back to basics, friends. I read an article, and maybe you, with your Scottish connection, have heard this, but that um, the Edinburgh Festival has basically said, we need, we're going to use this time to completely rethink what we've been doing. Yeah, um, I, I actually, they, they just recently hired, they're working with some folks uh, in, in, the, in the sort of big producing houses in Edinburgh that, that have these sort of grand long-term plans for kind of rethinking the, the essential structure of how theater uh -huh. in Scotland and in the UK is managed. And I mean, God, talk about taking and you know, finding an opportunity, right? Like, well, we gotta be shut for four months. We may as well take this time to kind of rethink whether or not we're doing it the right way. And I absolutely love that. I love that Especially idea. Especially since, you know, I, I mean, I, I remember going there when I was in university and I was studying abroad and then I went to see some friends who were doing a show in the fringe and, and being, feeling like a, you know, a five-year-old in a candy store around all these artists all over the streets everywhere and shows of every kind you could imagine that you could see. And then going back um, 2007, on my way home from another international arts festival that was in um, the Republic of Georgia and, and going, what the heck? I mean, this is a mess. <laughs> and not necessarily that, you know, Edinburgh made it a mess, but that it just, it, it, it grew and it turned, it be, you know, became a, some kind of a behemoth that was, you know, devouring itself or something. I, it was, it didn't feel as magical anymore. It just felt like, if you paid your money, you can get in. Um, of course, they still had the adjudicated festival, but but there's so much of it now that was just like, pay your money, come to your show, and you know, there's so many posters on top of other posters that you know maybe people will come and see yours. If, if you're right, lucky. if you're lucky, yeah, yeah, kind of a yeah. thing. So great. I mean, I hope they do. I, I read the article and felt really encouraged that they, it sounded to me like they wanted to go, well, why? Like you, you were saying, why did we get into this? Right. What, what was our calling and our vision? 
And I'm seeing, I'm seeing other, you know, I love the I love the reference to these sort of collaborative venues in Chicago. I don't know if you saw recently there was an American theater magazine article about <clears throat> a collaboration of 28 different theaters in San Diego who mm-hmm. have all they all just sort of got on the phone with each other and they were like, oh my God, what are we gonna do? And yeah. they're talking about shared resources, like a single place to get your tickets. So rather than everybody having to have a bazillion people working on different platforms, doing different ticket sales options, you know, kind of co- condensing those down, streamlining that process. And my hope is that it isn't just focused on things like marketing and ticket sales and all of that, but that it starts to look more broadly at how how so much of the competitive nature of American theater, um, that when I have a successful show, yeah. that certainly means that someone else is losing ticket sales, right? Like that, that we start yes. thinking that that the scarcity of money, the scarcity of audience and really kind of take this moment to sort of figure out what we can do to raise everyone's boats, right? Um, yes, and know. cheer for everyone. Uh, yeah. There's a, there, a theater company here that I work for who always promotes all of the theaters in town. They send out newsletters to their subscribers saying, look what our friends over at ATC are doing. Look what our friends over at Live Theater Workshop are doing. And and I find that, that generous spirit to be something I hope we can all do. Now's the Again, time. Now's you know, really cheering for, yeah. you know, a friend, a friend got work. Yay. <laughs> you know, yeah. Whatever it happens to be. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. Speaking of which, I have a great play for you that I think you should look at. Okay, great. What is it? it it's a two person show called Drawing Fire. It's written by my friend, John Lowell, whose agent is a friend of, uh, a friend of ours, KO's and mine, who we went to graduate school with. Um, and it's, I, you know, it's a two person show and it's it, the social justice theme is, is, um, strong. It's kind of around the, the, you know, the, um, uh, the Hebdo, um, uh, violence that happened when the cartoonists were uh, the Charlie Hebdo stuff. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. So it's connected to that. It's an American show. Um, and it, it it's just, um, <laughs> Like a doggy saying, what I are you doing over there? Hello, little He's man. so excited. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I think, it, you know, when you, just when you were talking about your themes, I think it would be a great show for you. And um, and it's kind of two, you know, middle-aged man and woman, um, recently divorced, but who adore each other. And, and John is extraordinary at writing relationships and really great dialogue between smart people. But the theme of it, I think, is something... You know, what is social justice and what are we responsible for in the world? What are we supposed to be telling? It's also, it's also kind of pertinent. You know, what are we supposed to be talking about? Right, what stories? are we supposed to be doing? Yeah. stories are we trying to put out there into the right. world? Right, yeah. And, um, um, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I, we'll, I will, we'll figure I it out. Will, we'll t- send yeah. it to me. Oh, yes. I will. I, I mean, have, you know, all well, I'm doing I'll is sitting here. John. Yeah. He's using this time to rewrite, but I think that it would be a great play for you guys to do. That sounds great. I love it. I mean, all I'm doing is sort of, you know, anguishing over numbers, engaging in podcasts with people I don't know, but have come to admire and like very, <laughs> including me, and trying desperately to entertain myself with either Netflix or reading plays. So exactly. Absolutely. I'm trying to watch to as many live things as I can and to take some museum tours because I was an art, oh, art history minor. So I'm like, I want to look at these paintings again. <laughs> that's great. I think that's exactly what the, that's exactly what you should be doing. Well, it yeah. has been an absolute delight and pleasure uh, to talk absolutely. with you. Absolutely. 
I feel like so much. every time I do these with people I don't know, I'm like, oh my God, I have a new friend. This is I, awesome. I feel like I know you. <laughs> I know it's great. Well, not only do we love someone in common, but you know, just our, our, exactly. our Celtic, our Celtic, uh, we're Celtophiles. Do you know this, this term that, that we often banter around? At least we, I learned this term in Scotland. And it, uh, if you're called show trash, it feels like that is a that is a that is a horrible thing to call someone. But it actually, <laughs> you're just like me. You're show trash, right? Like, yeah, exactly. You can sit down and have a drink and talk about it for hours and hours and hours. So, exactly. Yeah, I'm I'm finding lots of show trash on the podcast. I love it. Uh, <laughs> I'm my, sure <laughs> my name is Scott Palmer. I'm producing artistic director of Company of Fools, and you have been listening to Foolish Voices. If you have enjoyed my conversation with internationally acclaimed actor and director and trainer and teacher Molly. Lions, please consider supporting Company of Fools by making a donation in any amount via our podcast platform or online at our parent organization, that is the Sun Valley Museum of Art, on their website at svmoa.org. And I am also going to put some information about Molly and her work as an educator in the description of this podcast. So if you are in the Tucson area or any place on the planet and want to get some virtual coaching, Molly is your go-to. Sound good? Awesome. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, go play with that dog. He sounds he sounds a little desperate. And uh, I can't wait to get a copy of Drawing Fire. All right. We'll connect we'll soon. soon. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.